My name is Jennifer Egan, and my new novel is The Candy House. Jennifer Egan's latest novel, The Candy House, is a companion piece to her 2011 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad. But there really isn't much readers need to know before picking up this new title. Egan imagines a world where technology can capture and preserve memories, making them accessible to almost anyone. I spoke with Egan about the implications of such a world, as well as her fascination with fiction and her inspirations. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. So can you give a brief summary to the listeners? And I know that's not even fair to ask you to do that because it is such an elaborate book, but maybe just an elevator pitch. Sure. I mean, I'll say two things. One is it's every chapter is about a different person. And in a way, the whole uh, underlying idea of the book is the fun of moving in and out of different points of view and seeing how different the world looks to all of them and how differently we process reality as we live it. But the initial setup is that a tech icon named Bix Boughton in 2010 is 41 years old. He has invented social media. That's what I'm positing. But he is having a midlife crisis because he cannot figure out what to do next. He just doesn't have another idea. And in fact, he's haunted by this vision of whiteness that he sees as the kind of blank emptiness where there should be a new idea. And because he's so famous and instantly recognizable, he lives in kind of a strange world in which people tell him what he wants to hear, um, say what they hope he wants to hear. And so he can't find the kind of spontaneous conversation that he thinks will help him find a new idea. So he puts on a disguise. He disguises himself as a graduate student and he attends a discussion group of Columbia University professors in hopes of just having some sort of new thoughts happening in his head. And one of the things that one of the professors says leads him to his next big idea, which we learn about piecemeal throughout the book because we don't actually see him invent this idea. The chapter about him is really about his crisis and some kind of hilarious outcomes of his costume wearing. But what he does invent is a machine that allows people to externalize their consciousnesses so that they can view them from their present day perspectives. They can see all of their memories instead of the little snippets that are really what we're left with as our memories. And if they want to, they can share all or part of their consciousness to a collective, which is the price of access in order to be able to view and experience the anonymous memories and consciousnesses of other people who have joined. And so a lot of the action of the book, it swirls around this invention as we see it interact with people's lives in various ways. There are so many directions I want to go from there. So maybe we'll just tackle them one at a time because I wanna talk about Own Your Unconscious, which is the product that he invents. And you know, as you mentioned, you can go back and watch your memories, perhaps for clarification or for something you don't even recall from your childhood if you want to live it again. But as you mentioned, the other aspect of this technology is that if you agree to share your memories with the collective, you have access to other memories of, you know, who have shared theirs. Can we talk about some of that, you know, how this might present both negative and positive consequences for the world? Because you point out in the book that because people are able to go back and see other people's memories, you know, crimes are solved and, and things like that. But I was also struck by this quote from the book, not every story needs to be told. 
Well, I think that there are positive and negative impacts both on an individual level and on a global level. And what I really explore are the individual ways in which this machine interacts with people's lives. So what it lets people do, for example, a child can, if a parent's memory is available in the collective, even if that parent has passed away, that child, or now an adult, can view moments and even whole days of the parent's life through the eyes of that parent. So there's actually a chapter in which I do this. And a woman named Charlene actually visits through her father's eyes a day in 1965 when she herself was six and she sees herself as a six-year-old through his eyes. This is a day when her father, a straight-laced California businessman, goes on a kind of strange adventure. He's taken to a marijuana farm, a very unusual thing at that time, where a colony of what I guess you would say beatniks are living. And her father is initially just befuddled and, and a bit you know put off by all this, but he ends up having a kind of meaningful experience and returns home with a different life plan, which results in his divorcing his wife and becoming a sort of famous music producer. But the reason that Charlene wants to see all this is that she is trying to understand what happened to her parents' marriage. And she's now able to actually live that day as if she were her father. However, there's a very painful aspect to it. You asked about the positive and the negative. The positive is that she solves the mystery. She understands what happened. The negative is that she also learns from being inside her father's mind that he loved her little brother, Rolf, much more than he loved her and that he was consciously thinking about that. He would ask himself, well, it's okay, right? Don't most men love their sons more than their daughters? And of course, that's extremely painful. So I guess the question is, how much do we really want to know? You know, we're very curious creatures, we humans. I'm really curious. I mean, I'm a fiction writer. I spend my life, you know, indulging my curiosity about people who are really different from myself. However, when my curiosity leads me to do things like read my Amazon reviews, that's very (laughs) painful. That's information I don't need. It's not written for me. And in fact, I have not looked at them for years because I discovered that I would always gravitate toward the negative ones and then be, you know, devastated. Why? I was looking for information that was almost certainly going to hurt me. And there's an aspect of that to this technology in the novel as well. You know, and just talking about this, my head starts spinning because I keep thinking about this premise. And first of all, who has the time to go back and watch other people's memories because you're losing some of your own life. And if you pick and choose what you watch, are you ever getting the complete story? Because, you know, what if you stop watching right before a pivotal moment or something You know, you've heard that several people can live in the same house, but they all have different memories. They all are living different lives. And I was wondering how that would work if you have access to everyone's memories who were in the room. Is your perception no longer your reality? So thanks for making my head spin. Feel free to comment on that. Well, it's interesting. You say who has time to watch other people's memories? Uh, How much time do people spend on social media? Guess what that is? watching other people's memories or the cataloging of their lived experience as it happens. We seem to have an unbelievable amount of time to spend on activities like that. And I think most of us would agree we probably spend more than we wish we did. (laughs) Um, So so that's one thing. But your point is excellent, which is what, what even does it mean to review 
consciousness or memory. It's it's an imaginary construct. I mean, this is where I'm getting away with the fact that I'm I have asked the reader to suspend disbelief and engage in a an idea that we can actually put on a headset and look through someone else's eyes and know what it was like to be inside their brain. But you make the point that, you know, memory is so variable. It's a processed version of whatever happened. And even two people in the same room won't remember it the same way. There's a chapter where another daughter of this same businessman who becomes a music producer, a woman named Roxy, who's a, uh, she's a heroin addict, a kind of lifetime heroin addict in her mid fifties. And she ends up externalizing her consciousness because she wants to revisit her own memory of a trip that she took to London at age 16 with her father, this same man I was just speaking of, in which she feels that they bonded in this beautiful way. He was a very negligent father. She saw very little of him in her life. And she sees this time of her 16-year-old life as really almost the high point of her life, which has been very hard. So she externalizes her consciousness, but then in the end, she decides not to relive that memory because of exactly the point you make. She's afraid when it comes down to it, that it won't match up to the nostalgic version that she lives with and that gives her comfort and solace day to day. She doesn't want to be disappointed. So she chooses not to do it. And she ends up releasing her consciousness to the collective, which is something she had never planned to do because she decides she doesn't really want it, actually. I want to talk about one more thing with Own Your Unconscious before I move on. I want to read this quote and have you comment on it because it was near the end of the book. Here's the quote. But nothing could change Gregory's belief that Own Your Unconscious posed an external threat to fiction. Yeah, because... You know, the idea of own your unconscious, the attraction is that you can do the thing we can never do in real life, which is actually know what it feels like to be another person. We can't know it. It's like knowing what happens after you die. We haven't cracked that. We haven't figured it out. And fiction, to my mind, the reason I love to read fiction is that it is the only narrative art form that actually does give me the experience of being inside another person's mind. Anything that is image-based is not doing that. So if I'm looking at a person and they are telling me what's going on in their mind, that's not the same (laughs) because I'm looking, I'm starting with an image and then I'm trying to get beyond that into the internal life. But there's something about the fact that there are no images as we read fiction, except the ones that we make for ourselves that makes it just an inherently interior art form. If you fall out of the habit of reading fiction or reading anything long, it takes a certain muscle set to be able to do that easily. And I even fall out of that sometimes, but it's also very easy to get back into shape as it were. And for me, the reward is that I actually am transported out of my own psyche in a way that I cannot be by any other thing I might do, whether it's watch a movie or look at visual art I'm not in another brain or it doesn't feel that way. So the reason that own your unconscious poses such a threat is that it actually does the same thing. And so Gregory, who is much more old school, he's very inclined toward writing. He has an MFA and he wants to write fiction. He's appalled by this device that his father has 
invented. And of course, there's some generational conflict in there too, but he feels that this is a real threat. And, you know, one moment that comes to me when I think about what kind of led me to want to write about that generational conflict between father and son over this issue is that I was watching one of my sons watch a streamer playing a video game. And I thought, give me a break. It's it's bad enough that you want to play video games. And I, I realize I sound like a boomer, which I am. You want to play video games, but that's not even enough. You want to watch someone else play video games? Like, shoot me now. Why is this interesting? But then as I watched with him, I absolutely got it. What's interesting about it is that we are looking through the eyes of the gamer at the game as it's played. And the gamer is narrating their thought, their stream of consciousness as they play. And it gives the strong impression that we are inside another person's brain. It's the same joy as reading fiction. So that was really a revelation to me. And I think it actually played a part in in some of the inventing that I did for this book. I'd like to talk about the title, The Candy House. I saw a couple of references to it in the book. The first instance was with the introduction of Napster. And the warning given is nothing is free. Only children expect otherwise, even as myths and fairy tales warn us, never trust a candy house. So can we talk about the title, but also about the references to fairy tales and children's books that are throughout? You know, there's the warning about Hansel and Gretel, but, you know, one of the characters even has the tattoo of the seven dwarfs on her on her calf. So talk to me about those things. Yeah, I mean, I... I... I'm interested in the mythical landscape that children's books create in all of our minds and the way that they blend in a way with our own childhoods into this kind of imaginary realm that I think when you're a kid feels very real and that in some ways we spend, you know, the rest of our lives trying to connect to again. So I was very interested in that. There's also a character in the book who has several children. Her name is Noreen. And she's very focused on the fact that fairy tales rely on this idea of happily ever after. And she feels it's very important to point out to her children that there really is no such thing and that that's a matter of framing. So she says to them, when the fairy tale ends and it's happily ever after, she says things like, yeah, until, you know, until uh, a warring a faction invades the, 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 the castle and kills everyone. Or yeah, happily ever after until the prince gets sick of her when she, when she gets older and discards her to find another princess. And the children start crying and she says, I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you, basically. You have to know that this is what reality is like. I guess all of that leads to, in the book, a kind of an interest in how things are framed and how storytelling works on some level. And I use a lot of different forms in the book for each chapter. There's a chapter that's completely in the form of emails. There's a chapter that's narrated in basically short mental bulletins by a spy who is working for the U.S. government to try to infiltrate a group of men plotting against America. Uh, There's a stream of consciousness from a 13-year-old who is breathlessly narrating her anxiety about popularity at her country club. There's a kind of a conscious awareness of all the different ways there are to tell a story And I guess it just felt right to me to hearken back to these very early, almost archetypal stories that we all consumed as kids 
and in which often people move through portals between worlds, they enter imaginary landscapes, and in the case of Hansel and Gretel, they see what appears to be, you know, an idyllic landscape, which is this house made of candy, but it turns out to be too good to be true. There's a witch inside who wants to eat them, but they end up pushing her into the oven. And so it just felt like the right metaphor for the complicated relationship that most of us have to technology in the real world and that people have to this machine in the novel. Yeah, the complicated relationship. I mean, they're giving away their personal computer for a song on Napster, or we continue to give away information through social media and for convenience and ring doorbells and Nest thermostats. And I'm just wondering, should I be freaked out about the dark side of technology as much as I am? I don't know. You know, I, I, I find that there's kind of a division between the way I think about technology as a parent, let's say, and a citizen, and the way I think about it as a fiction writer. As a parent and a citizen, I worry about it a lot. I think I feel worried about it in the same way that you do. As a fiction writer, I'm just so curious about it because it feels like the great story that I've witnessed in my lifetime. You know, I was born in 62. By the time I went to college, there was one telecommunications innovation that I was aware of, call waiting. <laughs> 18 years, one invention. Imagine. I mean, now people generally, you know, someone 20 feels that someone 15 knows technology better than they do. Everything is changing so fast. So mapping that change and, and looking at its impact on human life is part of what I find so fun as a fiction writer. But I don't bring to it a sense of dystopian worry because not because I don't have it, but because I don't find it interesting. It's not an interesting thing to bring to fiction. For me, curiosity is the chief tool that I carry with me in my tool belt, not fear and a sense of doom. And I guess that's just about what excites me. And there's a chapter in The Candy House in which a young guy named Lincoln, who is a very statistically minded young person, who works for a tech firm, his job, in a way you could see, is very dystopian. He's what's called a counter. His job is basically to collect data on consumers. So he is the face in this book of that, what we sometimes think of as the dark reality of multinationals collecting our data. But Lincoln is a totally human guy. And, the, and what's going on in that chapter is that he's trying to figure out how to use data analysis to figure out how to make the girl that he's crazy about fall in love with him, his coworker. And so he's not a scary guy. And in fact, he pushes back hard on this idea that data collection is somehow bad for human beings and debasing to human experience. And he says, any mystery that can be solved with facts was never mysterious in the first place. So if knowing more about human life makes humans less mysterious, fine. And he points to things like the heavens and the sciences and makes the point that the more we know in those realms, the more mysterious they become. So he's not a scary guy. <laughs> Have you listened to the audiobook of The Candy House? No, I help to choose the readers and I'm very excited about the fact that it's an ensemble piece just as the book is. And I'm a, an audiobook freak. I listen to audiobooks constantly. I'm a little leery of listening to my own book 
on audio. I just, you know, who needs it really? <laughs> um, but I hear it's great, a great recording, and I couldn't be happier. I listened to it as I read it. I followed along. And the Lincoln's chapter, it's, it's called Rhyme Scheme. He did an amazing job. If you listen to just one chapter, listen to that one. I mean, the actor just, I enjoyed it so very much. So uh, that's anyway. so nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, that it's interesting. That chapter of any piece of writing in my entire career, I had to do the fewest drafts of that to make to finish it. And it's very strange because if you were going to pick one character whose sensibility would theoretically be the furthest from mine, I am a person who didn't get past trigonometry in sophomore year of high school. This quantitatively minded, number fixated young man was, I felt like he, his mind and my mind melded so effortlessly. It showed me a side of myself that I didn't know existed. So I want to talk to you about the different characters, because as you mentioned, you know, each chapter was told from a different voice through a different lens, sometimes a different format, like the email epistolary or the field guide from the, the spy. Did you have to create like a style guide for each story and each voice? I didn't have to create a style guide, but what I do have is a wish list. When I work on books like this that are kaleidoscopic and more ensemble pieces, I like very much to use different forms for each chapter because that just widens the range of stories that I can tell. And so I'll often have a list of things that I'm hoping to do, and I never am able to do all of them because the key to using any sort of unusual structure is to find a story that can only be told that way. And that involves a lot of waiting and a lot of trial and error. And there are still things I want to try that I haven't been able to make work. But epistolary, I tried that in Goon Squad. I couldn't make it work. I was so happy when I finally made it work in the Candy House because, you know, novels in the form of letters are as old as the novel itself and can be really fun because it's a great way of watching people sort of go around each other's back and, and to see on the page ulterior motives and schemes. So that was on my wish list. I really wanted to tell a story in the first person plural. So to have a chapter narrated as we, and I was able to finally do that in the candy house. Those are the two youngest daughters of the one-time businessman turned record executive. They narrate the chapter as we. I really wanted to use Twitter and the chapter narrated by the spy it was actually tweeted in 2012. So Twitter at 140 characters, which is very different from Twitter now because now Twitter is more like paragraphs, but then it was more like a sentence per utterance. And uh, I, I was interested in the odd ways that that, that the kinds of expression that that invited and I wanted to use that. So I keep a wish list. Another thing on the wish list was stream of consciousness, an actual stream of consciousness narrative. And so I had that on my wish list. And then I start with time and place, which in this case was a country club. The, the vibe of country club life, the smell of grass, the sound of tennis balls. I didn't spend tons of time in country clubs growing up, but my grandparents belonged to one. And I, I knew that I wanted to try to capture that atmosphere at some point in the book. And I began writing into that country club atmosphere. And sure enough, a 13-year-old's stream of consciousness was what ended up coming into the narrative. And so somehow having a couple of different goals fuse 
in the writing is what let me do that chapter. So it's more about wish lists and waiting for things to come together. So you mentioned time and place, but the novel doesn't follow a timeline. I mean, the narrative might go back in time or it might jump to a time that hasn't occurred yet here in 2022. So how do you keep a handle on the aspect of time when you plot and write? You're revealing the story through each chapter, but it's not following a a through timeline, if that makes sense. Yes, no, that's very true. When I was working on A Visit from the Goon Squad, I thought the timeline would be linear. I thought it would go backwards. And I realized when I read the material in that form that it was very flat and that somehow with these ensemble books where all of these points of view fuse into one story arc, Going in chronological order is not the way to get the most power out of a story like that. I have to organize it around curiosity. What is the reader curious about right now? And what will be satisfying to discover right now? Because it's very much a book built around catching a glimpse of someone, a minor character, and then suddenly finding ourselves right in the middle of their point of view. So that is really the organizing principle. When I say time and place, what I really mean is period and location. So for example, I talked about the father going to visit these beatniks in 1965. The place is important, but the time is really important too in terms of the atmosphere. And so that's really what I mean. Not not so much chronology as a deep sense of a location at a particular moment and all of the sensory aspects of that location at that time. And I do, although I never write about myself and I do it very badly when I try, the times and places from my life are very useful to me. So I grew up in San Francisco. We didn't move there until 1969, but that feeling of, of, of the, those Northern California redwood forests uh, is something that I know very well from that time. And that's true of a lot of the places that I write about in the book. They're, they're just places I remember from my past and that I can access in a very sensory way with no effort, just in a state of, you know, pleasure really at remembering them. You mentioned catching a glimpse of a minor character and then learning that person's story through their perspective, like in the next chapter. And the Candy House is a companion piece to a visit from the Goon Squad. It revisits some of the characters, but does one need to read one before the other? No, definitely not. I mean, they stand completely on their own. I did not reread Goon Squad until I was almost done with The Candy House. And I actually discovered that I had gotten a lot of facts wrong about my own character. So I had to do some rewriting. Um, No, because the characters that I pick up on from Goon Squad are mostly so minor that either we meet them briefly and the reader has probably forgotten, or in some cases, we've only heard them by name. So there were certain events that intrigued me in Goon Squad that I wanted to revisit. But again, there's no reason because chronology isn't a factor in either book. There's no reason that one comes before the other. I actually think maybe it would be more fun to read Candy House first and then 
go to Goon Squad because the earliest chapter of both books is in Candy House. But there are certain events that resonate, like there's a drowning in A Visit from the Goon Squad that we actually witness as the readers. Two undergrads from NYU go swimming in the East River after a night of partying. One of them gets carried away by a tide. He's not a strong swimmer and he drowns. And that was one of those events that I felt like I wanted to come back to it because it's so huge. And I just wanted to see how that, what kind of impact that would have had on the two boys who were adjacent to it. One who went swimming also, and the other who was the last person to see those two before they walked down the river and went swimming. And in fact, the person who was the last person to see them was Bix, the tech entrepreneur who invents own your unconscious. And what first motivates him to, to, to create this invention is that on that very same night that he visits the academic discussion group, he ends up by the East River standing in the place where he stood with those two boys many years earlier. And he finds himself wanting to remember that morning better and realizing that he cannot remember almost all of it. He has little snippets, but that's it. And he feels like he invented social media, everyone can find each other. Why can't he find these memories? So the wish to solve a mystery, to gather information and to know his own past better is a huge part of the motivation for him to invent this machine. And I guess that same curiosity that I had about certain peripheral characters from A Visit from the Goon Squad led me to write this new book. So the Candy House is dedicated to your writing group. Can you tell us a bit about the group? You know, how they inspire you, how the group works? Yes. Oh my gosh. They're so great. I've been in a writing group since the 90s. I really need feedback. And part of it is that since I don't write about my own life and I don't use myself or anyone I know as characters, I'm almost always outside of my range of expertise. (laughs) And so it's just really important for me to have other voices uh, giving me a sense of whether the material is alive, does it feel right? And during the pandemic, we met every single week, starting when the pandemic began through the rest of 2020, we did not miss a Sunday. And I, it ju- I just was so aware in that time of my debt to them, which it goes way back, but it felt even more extreme with that regularity of meeting and the strange times that we were in the midst of. We only read aloud in our writing group. So we get an immediate sense of how the story sounds, first of all, which is very important. How does the language work, the music, the rhythm? And then we tend to focus on the positive, which is just as helpful, if not more, than knowing what isn't working, because that's what gives us the blueprint for how to fix it. But you know, I you also need honest responses. So I definitely have memories of bringing in certain chapters of the Candy House and getting their reactions. And you know, I remember actually bringing in the chapter that's the stream of consciousness from the point of view of the thirteen-year-old girl. And this was before I had really figured out what the invention would be that would be the through line in the book. I wasn't sure what it was, but there was a reference along the way that people can sometimes see each other's thoughts. I didn't really know what that meant. But when I read the stream of consciousness, one of the writing group members, the only man, said, ah, 
it's almost like when you alluded to that machine in some other chapter that lets people see each other's thoughts, it's almost like you're using that machine to go inside her mind. And when he said that, I felt like the penny dropped and I realized, ah, so this is a book in which we move among different points of view in the way that, say, a role-playing game player moves between different worlds through portals into and out of different landscapes, mental landscapes. And so sometimes the insights that I get at this writing group are really important. And I'm just vastly indebted to them. Okay, so we've talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Well, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of things. I mean, there obviously there's so many other characters we could talk about, right. but you know, I think it, it it only makes sense to invoke them if they fit into larger themes that that we're dealing with. And it does feel like we've talked about a lot of different things. Well, thank you so much for visiting with me. I loved the book. Um, I could relate to, and now I'm blanking on the middle child's name, that middle son. Who oh, I just kept Ignoring. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. See, I couldn't even remember his name. <laughs> I love it. I love that you couldn't remember his name. In a way, you know, there, there's a kind of running joke through the book, just in terms of seeing a, a peripheral character whose mind that we then finally explore. There are three sons in the Hollander family. And we very early in the book are in the points of view of the oldest and the youngest who are pretty extreme. The oldest becomes an opioid addict and, and blows up his life spectacularly. And the younger one is obsessed with authenticity and screams in public to elicit authentic responses. But the running gag is that Ames, the middle son, is always forgotten. People just can't, they can't remember his name. They, they seem to just not see him. They forget that there even are three sons. They think there are two sons. And in the last chapter of the book, we finally enter into Ames's point of view. And, you know, in a certain way, it's, it's, it's kind of, I guess, tipping my hat to the, the organizing principle that's been there all along, which is, of course, there are no minor characters in real life. We <laughs> are the protagonist of our own lives. Every single one of us, no matter how quiet, how inconspicuous, how easily forgotten, we are each the center of a gigantic cosmos of perception and experience. And it was such a joy to finally go inside Ames's mind and give him his due. Well, Jennifer Egan, the book is The Candy House. Thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Jennifer Egan, author of the book, The Candy House, which was published by Scribner. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Stasser and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.